Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can check out our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Okay, so on today's episode, I take a deep dive into voting rights with Richard Green, the civics dean. Richard is a communication strategist, a columnist, a civics educator, a former attorney, a national radio talk show host, and author of Words That Shook the World, A Hundred Years of Unforgettable Speeches and Events. So if you're wondering why I am talking about voting rights on this show, well, my mission in starting Commune was to bridge personal wellness with societal well-being. And I believe the health of a liberal democracy is predicated on an educated and engaged citizenry. The battle for voting rights is centuries old. With every effort to extend the franchise to more people, there has been a subsequent inverse attempt to impinge upon that right. And that tug of war is coming to a head once again, as the House of Representatives has recently passed H.R. 1, the For the People Act, designed to expand voting rights. And, at the same time, state legislatures are considering bills to roll back mail-in and early voting. So, on the show, Richard and I discuss the provisions of H.R. 1, the messy history of voting rights, and we delve into some of the more arcane legislative procedures of the United States Senate. And as a final footnote before we jump in, I make best efforts to avoid the political invective on this show, with the notable exception of my occasional critiques of the former president. And I purposefully seek out multiple points of view, even when those viewpoints are at odds with my own. Now, my guest today clearly has his partisan opinions and expresses them with vigor. And with regards to voting rights, I share Richard's passionate commitment to their expansion. However, I am willing to talk with anyone who can make a thoughtful case for their curtailment. With that said, I present to you Richard Green. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. Richard Green, the Civics Dean. How you doing, buddy? Welcome to the show. I appreciate you being here. Without preamble, there has been a tremendous amount of attention paid to the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, um, which is now law. Uh, But there is another incredibly notable and significant bill that has recently passed the House called H.R. 1, which I believe is the For the People Act. Yeah, last year, last Congress was called Government for the People Act. Now it's just For the People Act. And this bill, which is now going to progress eventually to the Senate, um, has a whole variety of provisions, um, which I'd like to unpack with you. 
and then we can work uh, by, together to put it into some form of historical context of why, again, this is coming up, because the fight for voting rights is is not one that exists exclusively in 2021. This is something that, you know, goes back to the 15th Amendment and before. And then hopefully we can get to covering some of the more arcane um, procedural methods of the United States Senate, like the filibuster and cloture, which are terms that um, that do get thrown about, but I'm not sure that I even understand them completely. So uh, maybe we can unpack some of those. So let me just say, there is a reason that it is HR1. And in the Senate, it is S1. So HR stands for House of Representatives. It's the first bill, the first bill of the session. And S1, it's the first bill of the Senate, right? And so Nancy Pelosi in the House and Chuck Schumer in the Senate and their Democratic caucuses have prioritized this bill as being the single most important bill of their entire two-year term of Congress. Now, why is that? It's not just voting rights. It's actually democracy at a very core level. And as, as a lawyer and someone who I worked on Capitol Hill as an intern when I was in college, and I run for Congress, and I've hosted you know, a political talk show on on Air America Radio, I followed Rachel Maddow for about three years. HR1 is one of the most profound pieces of legislation that I've ever seen. And it's a composite of all of the great ideas that have been percolating out of need for decades. And they're all in this one package. So one of the things that it addresses is let's make sure everybody is registered to vote. Right? Let's not make people go through hoops to register to frickin' vote. I mean, it's your right as an American citizen, and it's a core right, right? You either have a voice or you don't, which is, and we'll get to the Electoral College hopefully in, in a little bit. So, what HR1 says is there's going to be national voter registration, automatic voter registration. Some states have it, some states don't have it, and some states make voter registration hard, but we've got to go to the core of why any of this stuff is hard, right? You have one party, the Democrats, who want everybody who is legal and able to vote, who is a citizen to vote. We want everyone to vote. The Republicans don't. And if I were a Republican, I wouldn't either. Why? Because the Republican Party has not embraced any policy, not one, not one policy that is embraced by the majority of the American people. Let's look at the three things that they have embraced that, have, that has driven them into the White House and into control of the Senate and the House, because they've been very successful. And how can they be successful when they're not representing the will of the majority of the people? Number one, is they suppress voting. And they appeal to three, they have appealed to three specific issues that have been particularly emotionally compelling to a, to a particular demographic. And do you know who that demographic is? I know you do. It's white Christian evangelicals. What have they done? They've said, hey, we know you don't like abortion. 
we know you are pro-life, at least when it comes to the unborn, not when it comes to people after the point, but we know that you are anti-abortion. We're going to be, we the Republicans, even though we couldn't really give a shit, we're going to be the party of pro-life and anti-abortion. So they ended up getting a lot of people to come out and vote for Republicans, even though who is the Republican Party? Really, who the Republican Party is, is the party of big business and wealthy people. Now, how do I know that? Let me just a little quick sideline. I hope this is okay. So every single Democrat except for one in the entire Congress, one congressman up in Maine in, in the House, and every senator voted for the the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, which gives, right now, checks are being wired into your account, $1,400 and then $300 extra for unemployment. And then there's a child tax credit. I mean, amazing stuff. It is truly a bottom up bill, unlike anything that we have ever seen in the United States in decades, right? But that's not how the Republicans like to operate. They, they, in 2017, under Donald Trump, they passed a 1.7, no, I think it was also $1.9 trillion trickle-down package of tax cuts, almost exclusively for who? Wealthy people. So it's the complete opposite. And then right after the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that was just signed into law by President Biden, they went, the Republicans in the Senate went and said, you know what the number one priority is for us now? It is a $1.7 trillion tax cut for the wealthiest families in America. They want to eliminate the estate tax, which is the tax that happens when if you have a lot of money, you have a big estate and you die, right? Most of it's going to go to your family members, but a chunk of it's going to go to the government as an estate tax. And they're saying, no, that's not fair to rich people. All they care about is rich people. So all they care about is rich people and corporations, but they've been able to get a lot of people be, who are Christian evangelicals to vote for that scenario, that agenda, because they've been all they've been focused on is we're going to get rid of abortion, which they will. That's done. We are um, pro-gun rights. We want everyone to have as many AR-15s and AK-47s and open carry as they can. So the Second Amendment, which somehow seems to be associated with the, the religion of Jesus, I don't completely understand that. And then the third thing is, is gay marriage and gay rights. So they have appealed to the three Gs, God, guns, and gays. And as a result, they have won massive amounts of elections that would not have otherwise been won. So coming back to H.R. 1, the main element of H.R. one of the core elements of H.R. 1 is we're going to make sure that everybody is automatically registered to vote. And the Republicans do not want that. And they're going to fight it tooth and nail. Got it. And I think it's important to point out that in this last presidential election, we did see significant voter participation uh, in comparison to, to prior elections. So I think of the, I think there's 258 or 260 million voting age eligible uh, people in the, in, the, in, in the United States and about 160 million people voted. Um, and it was huge, which is, 
you know, somewhere around 60, I've got some notes here, that about 62% of the eligible populace actually voted, which was up considerably. It was, you know, in, in 2016, it was 136 million, went up to 159 million people. And obviously, it was a very intense uh, election season, and, and, and that um, inspired a lot of people to get involved. But there was also significant changes in how uh, in voting regulations because of COVID, and um, and that really allowed a lot more people to be a part of the of uh, of the voting experience. So I know that for example in HR1 that it tries to set some nat- uh, national standards around a a early voting and guarantees nationwide that prior to election day itself that there are 15 days where people can vote early and that those polls in each uh, across those 15 days need to be open for a minimum, I think, of nine or 10 hours. Because often what you have in, in the United States, where if you don't have that Tuesday off in November, or it's raining, or, you know, there's some act of God, or, you know, life just is busy, you don't vote. Um, so one of the provisions in this bill tries to elongate that early voting period and make that a national standard so more people do get involved. Um, and I, I, I mean, we're, of course, working under the premise that the more people that are involved, the better. But of course, that's not a premise that is universally shared, uh, though it seems to be something that, that is at the core of, of democracy, you know, no matter what party. Well, let, let, me, yeah. let me address that. Let me address that. First of all, in 2016, uh, Hillary got 66 million votes. In 2020, Joe Biden got 81 million votes. Right. That's a lot more. But equally, Donald Trump in 2016 got 63 million votes, about 3 million less than Hillary. But in 2020, he got 74 million votes. Yeah. So there was this, I think because of the catalyst effect of this crazy, mentally deranged human being who is also a fascist, who people either love or hate, that personality referendum. Yeah, galvanized a a tremendous amount of energy on on both sides. And that, yeah, well, and that could be a a strange silver lining, um, you know, to, to this period in history where, you know, more people are involved. Um, and, uh, and, you know, obviously, it, it seems like the evolving demography or demographics of the United States would favor Democrats in the long term as, as the country becomes more and more diverse. I think in 2042 is the first year, if trends continue as they are, where whites are no longer the majority population in the United States. And there's also, I think by 2050, if trends continue as they are, um, more than 50% of the populace will be non-affiliated from a religious perspective. And that is whether you feel that those 
that that demographic evolution is inspiring and 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 you're optimistic about it or whether you're scared and fearful about that trend is right at the center <laughs> i think of of the debate in our country no no you're absolutely right the the existential angst of the white not terribly educated middle to lower class male is that he is being canceled, right? I mean, it used to be this is, you know, white men had dominion over everything, including women <laughs> and politics. And now you're a not terribly educated white guy, not very sophisticated. You look around and you're seeing women everywhere running stuff. Right? That didn't used to happen. That threatens them. And you're seeing people of color running stuff. And that didn't happen. And I think we can't under, we can't over, the psychic impact to a lot of these people of living in a country for eight years with a black man as president of the United States. I think that was horrifying consciously or subconsciously to a lot of people. To me, I was yeah. ecstatic about it. Yeah, and this is, I think, why we see over and again um, a, a sort of restorative nostalgia being marketed <laughs> by by the right um you know as this kind of safe picket fenced law and order um 50s-esque christian white version of the united states and of course that that reality is a complete whitewash and belies the the true reality of the 1950s, for example, for for a lot of people, but you know, people look. There's a certain sector of the population that looks back on "quote unquote" that time with this sort of perceived sense of nostalgia. And if you recall, "Make America Great Again" was actually Ronald Reagan's campaign slogan before it was 45's slogan. So you know, this idea gets you know, dusted off again and again. Um, but let's stick to HR1 for a minute because there's so well, much to I get there. But I, go ahead. Just, yeah. I, have to say, I have to say one more thing. The more people that vote, the more likely it is that Republicans will lose and that Democrats will win because the lowest turnout in voters is amongst Democratic base. It is young people and people of color who overwhelmingly vote Democrats. And I just have to say, I think, and it just came to me, I mean, George Floyd just got $27 million settlement, um, but he needs to be credited, I think, with defeating Donald Trump. Because if it had not been for that horrific event in Minnesota with George Floyd, you would probably not have had LeBron James and all these basketball players and baseball players and football players encouraging low propensity young african-american men to get out and vote i I think it's a a good point and a debatable one because i think what we also saw emerge from the horrific murder of of george floyd last may was uh was this defund the police effort which i think was played very much into this kind of nostalgia of law and order and to be honest, law and order has a pretty good track record from in, in electoral politics. But 
let, 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 that, we can cover that, 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 that. That is the only comeback to what I said that I think is valid. So <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. So you're right. And we can't continue to make those unforced errors and, and cause people to get freaked out when there is nothing to be freaked out about. Yeah. A la Dr. Seuss. But we don't want to talk about him, right? Now. <laughs> um, so let's talk about gerrymandering because this is another um, provision in the bill. So as I understand Yeah. So as I understand it, this bill establishes a nonpartisan committee to look at how districts, house districts particularly, are cut and sliced up. Um, and maybe you could just unpack that for a moment, just the general concept of gerrymandering, how districts are cut up and, and how that and why uh, the way that they're cut up is not necessarily representative of the will of the people. Got it. Well, let me let me explain the mathematics of gerrymandering because it's it's really quite simple and it's really important. By the way, gerrymandering has nothing to do with presidential elections or Senate elections. Those are entirety of the state elections, and it has nothing to do with the districts. But where gerrymandering is really important is in the House of Representatives because you get one congressman or congresswoman for every 800, 900,000 um, people in your population. So let's say you have five congressmen, right? And you've got more or less equal black people, uh, brown people, like people of color and white people. Now, if you are a Republican and you're in charge of the state legislature, because also it affects the state legislative districts and how they're carved up, which is very important for keeping control of the state assembly and, and state assembly and the state senate. And you have, you know, five congressional districts, for example, and you can divide them up um, however you want. You're not going to just have, you know, nicely beautiful little square or circular districts. What you're going to do is you're going to create these monsters like a salamander, right, with a tail that goes one place. Because what you want to do is you want to take all of as many of the black and brown people as you as you can and squish them into one district and say, okay, we're going to forfeit that one district, but we're now going to have a really good chance of winning the other four. So instead of having it be two or three Democrats, it's going to be likely one Democrat and four Republicans. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it was named after this guy named Jerry, G-E-R-R-Y. It's actually pronounced Gary. And he kind of was the first person to come up with this. That's why they call it, it's the Gary Salamander. So that's where Jerry is. Ah, that's a good there piece of go. trivia. I didn't know that one. Yeah. You know, I, I'm familiar. I have a friend, Julie Oliver, who ran for Congress in, in the, I think, 25th Congressional District in Austin, Texas. And I was looking at some of the um the, the way that uh some of the districts are carved up in and around Austin and Austin happens to be one of the few kind of liberal bastions within Texas um but you know the way that they're carved up now is they'll take just one little corner of Austin and then they'll include it in a district that is very very rural and they'll just keep dividing Austin up that way so Austin actually doesn't really have a lot of liberal representation. It has, you know, a whole bunch of the cities just cut up in a lot of different ways to minimize the impact 
of the population that might normally be voting Democratic. So anyway, it's just one example. Right. And, and, you know, with enough time and enough data scientists and enough, you know, computer programs, you can slice it to the exact streets that you need to include or disinclude. Yeah. And let's not say that this is just a purely Republican phenomenon, but I will say I, that. I agree. Yeah. Um, I agree. Okay, so other elements and components of, of HR1. So there's some ethics rules components for public servants, and one that struck me particularly, and I'll read it just because I have it here, is when a member of Congress settles a sexual harassment or, dis or discrimination lawsuits, in certain cases, they can use taxpayer money to settle. HR1 would prevent taxpayer money from being used for such settlement. So that that, that seems like a, a concept that could be universally embraced. <laughs> right. And there's another one in there. I don't know if you're going to get to it. It establishes from for all time forward that if you're going to run for president, you have to show your taxes. Right. Makes and, sense to me, right? Yeah, that's a clear outgrowth of our more recent circumstances. Um, I have no idea so, what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I have no recollection of that previous time. Well, you're spiritual bypassing then. Um, okay, so these these are a, a number of the major components in this bill, and this bill is. And I can I before you go further, just yeah. real quick, a couple of really good ones. Yeah. So it it allows for mail-in voting. It allows for early voting. And it also um, prohibits dark money. Right. That's right. I forgot about that. Did you want to get yeah. into that? No, I, I actually I had it in my notes, but I but I, I, I skipped over it by accident. You're absolutely right. This is actually key. So please take a moment to elucidate on this. Yeah. My friend, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, this has been his issue for years and years and years, because what can happen is because of the Citizens United decision of the Supreme Court, a corporation can spend as much money as they want supporting a candidate, right, or a cause, and they don't have to, and they don't have to disclose anything. And and what this says is, I believe that the limit is ten thousand. No matter who you are, yes, you have the right under Citizens United, the Supreme Court ruled that to donate a hundred million dollars, but it can't be dark anymore. It has right. to come out into the light, and it, it has to be disclosed where that money is coming from which will be a huge disincentive for a lot of wealthy people and corporations to put that kind of money to literally buy politicians. Yeah, absolute transparency is key. And I believe there's also a public funding which um, I love. Uh, component to it where on small donations, they, there would be a public funding uh, mechanism to match dollar for dollar. So if you're not, if you're a candidate and you're not uh, affiliated with like a, a well-financed super PAC, um, you know, you can run a more grassroots campaign and still have some matching funds. So here's the cool thing. So you're going to be able to take some of your tax dollars, I think it's up to you know, $50, and you're going to be able to say, I want to give it to Bernie Sanders or I want to give it to so-and-so. And that will be matched, I think, at a six to one or whatever ratio. In other words, it engages people to have more than just their voting voice. They can actually vote with their tax dollars, which encourages increased civic engagement. I think it's an awesome thing. And it reduces the reliance on big, super wealthy corporations 
and individuals. In other words, everything we've talked about, if you really wanted a fair system where people were equally engaged and encouraged to engage and as a part of their American citizenship, this bill covers everything you would possibly want. And not one Republican is going to vote for it. Um, but they're voting for other things. And I think one of the reasons why this bill has been endorsed and, and sponsored by Democrats and passed in the House is because there are countervailing efforts happening on a state level, um, largely supported by Republicans, to roll back uh, and curtail a lot of enfranchisement. Now, in fairness, there was a uh, there was an expansion of voting uh, opportunities and capacities, particularly due to COVID for specific reasons. Um, and so some of those um, measures are, there's an effort to roll back some of those measures, but it's also uh, really curtailing uh, mail-in voting, um, obviously drop boxes, which became a, a source of, um, you know, headlines prohibiting the use of drop boxes. Uh, I know specifically in Georgia, there's an attempt to roll back early voting um, and, uh, and a lot of these measures are made possible uh, because of the Shelby County versus Holder decision in 2013, which which we can get to. But maybe you can talk a little bit about what's happening at the state level and, and this tug of war. Um, well, yeah, absolutely. The, the best way to understand what's happening is that they have made pizza illegal in the state of Georgia. I'm serious. You cannot. No, no. Maybe you didn't know this, right? I actually went down to Selma, Alabama, and got a donation of a nice chunk of money to buy food for black people going to black churches on election day, where they could all gather and and support each other in going to the polls, right? So this is a pretty big deal, especially in low-income communities where people may be missing out on some work, right? Maybe costing them some money, and they're standing in lines for really long periods of time because there's not very many voting machines in low-income, you know, people of color neighborhoods. And so what has become a practice, and I've participated in this, is getting food like pizza, right? Water and walking up and down the line and handing it out. Like, hey, we really appreciate you doing your civic duty and standing in line. We know you're hungry, we know you're thirsty here. And so they don't want people to be fed because it's much more likely that they'll get frustrated and tired or hungry and they'll go home. Literally, they said it is now illegal to give pizza to someone sitting, standing in line, waiting to vote. And is it specific? Is it specifically? But there you go. Yeah, I was going to ask if it was specifically targeted just to pizza or or sandwich. If there's sort of a grandfather clause for sandwiches or something. Pizza is fan favorite. But I have to tell you, really, really funny, Jeff, that when I went down to Selma, Alabama, to this black church, which Brown Chapel, which is where Martin Luther King started that march to Montgomery where John Lewis and everybody got beat up. Um, 
the, the reverend said, he said, can we do vegetarian stuff? Because I really don't want to spend money on, on, on meat. And he goes, yeah, we can, but no one will eat it. And I said, so what do we have to do? And he said, well, what people really like here is fried chicken and catfish. I said, oh, okay, I'm not going to buy it. But here, here's the money. You go buy it. Do it. So. <laughs> Richard, whatever gets it done for you. I, yeah, you I, know I, I appreciate your, your level of commitment. Um, okay. So we've got this tug of war happening the state level, you've got Republicans trying to pass various measures to curtail enfranchisement. You have the Democrats on a national level trying to get H.R. 1 through now the Senate. And there's this tug of war. But this tug of war is not a phenomenon that is native to 2021. This has been going on essentially for 150 years in this country. So I want to go back in history to put this battle in a little bit of, of context and um, and get your uh, your commentary on it as, as I go through it. So in, after the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were passed. The 15th Amendment to the Constitution specifically guaranteed the right to vote could not be denied based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude, I think is what, what it says. Now, in the aftermath of, of 18, I think that was passed in 1870, you saw an increase in voting. But of course, in the southern states, they didn't want black people voting. Um, and so they started to pass a variety of laws and honestly, new constitutions all through the South in this post-Reconstruction era that created a, uh, a number of barriers for participation. Um, poll taxes, uh, literacy tests. I believe that there were kind of very complicated residential requirements that ne you needed to live in a state for a certain amount of time. There were all sorts of <laughs> convoluted grandfather clauses and what I read about recently, these good character clauses. So even if you didn't pass, if you were a white citizen and you didn't pass the literacy test, if you had served in the armed forces or in the Confederate army, you still could still vote. Um, and really what this did was disenfranchise black people and honestly, a lot of poor white people. Um, and that was a pattern for the first half of the of the 20th century. Um, and obviously, there in the 60s, there was a civil rights movement in the United States, and there was a number of very, very consequential bills that were passed. Um, obviously, the Civil Rights Act um, of 1964, and then more specifically, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And maybe you could talk about the impact that those bills or those laws made on the experience of what it was like to be black in the United States. So first of all, I, I don't know if you're watching the CNN documentary on Lincoln um, every Sunday night. Oh my God, it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life. And it really goes through a lot of what we're talking about. 
And I want to remind people, we're talking about 1870 and then on. We were only talking about men. Right. right. There was not even a, 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 we were a long way away from having women be able to vote. Women only got to be able to vote by constitutional amendment, um, the 19th Amendment in 1920. Right. Right. So what we're talking about is white is, is white men and black men only, no, no women. So 64 was this wonderful thing, the Civil Rights Act. Lyndon Johnson, who was a phenomenal president on everything except for the Vietnam War. And we thought it was taken care of, right? It's taken care of. But then if you see the movie Selma, which is one of the great movies about history, um, it shows Oprah Winfrey going into the county clerk's office to, to, to register to vote. And they literally were saying, well, can you recite the, the preamble to the Constitution word for word? I mean, they would throw anything they could to disenfranchise black people. And, and then so there was this movement, Martin Luther King and John Lewis. And that was the march from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, where John Lewis literally got his head cracked over. And what was so relevant about that was Lyndon Johnson, you know, Martin Luther King was saying to Lyndon Johnson, hey, the Civil Rights Act of 64, it's not enough. We're not able to vote. We can't vote. And he goes, yeah, 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 this is tough. Listen, I worked my ass off to get the civil rights. And now you're asking me to do this again? It was hard enough, right? And then there were cameras filming John Lewis and the, the march from Selma to Montgomery where these troopers, these white troopers in Selma, Alabama, when they were trying to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge, were beating the crap out of them and literally beat John, John Lewis's head and, and cracked his skull. And Lyndon Johnson was watching that in the White House on TV. And so was the whole country. And it's like, okay, we got to do something now. And so shortly after that, because of John Lewis and Martin Luther King, Congress passed the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Fast forward to 2013, and the people in, in the South are saying, enough already, enough. We've got enough Black people voting. We've already done it. There's no more systemic racism. There's no problem. Right? We took care of it. The 65, 1965 Voting Rights Act took care of it. We don't need that anymore. And because of John Roberts and a Republican court in 2013, they said, you know what? You're right. There's really no longer a systemic racism problem. States can basically do whatever the hell they want. Right. And I think that that was what you said right there at the end was the key, I think, component to that decision. Because as I understand it, in the Voting Rights Act of, 18th, of 1965, it eliminated some things specifically like, I believe, the literacy test. But what it really did was create this, um, what I think is called a, the Section 5 pre-clearance requirement. I know, it's a weird term. It's a very strange term. term. But as I understand it, it basically ripped jurisdiction from local and state governments to be able to make laws that would curtail the ability of racial minorities to vote. And yeah. it said, you can't do that unless you, you can't legislate um, unless you have 
uh, authorization from, I think, a U.S. district attorney or a particular, uh, I think it was this, the court, the D.C. Circuit Court. And so it really ripped away a lot of power from state and local governments to to curtail enfranchisement. And this the 2013 Supreme Court case that you're referring to, Shelby County versus Holder, essentially re- reversed that pre-clearance uh, notion and granted back the ability for states to make new laws that might or might not curtail the the ability to vote. And you're, uh, you're absolutely right. I believe John Roberts wrote the assent in that particular case for the reasons that you articulated. Essentially, he it said, well, wrong. yeah, yeah, it was it was a horrible and horribly wrong Supreme Court opinion. Yeah. But what people need to understand about civics is whatever the Supreme Court says is constitutional is constitutional. Whatever the Supreme Court says is not constitutional is not constitutional. Five people get to decide everything. There is no appeal. And they don't even have to abide by precedent. So when a Roe v. Wade kind of case comes up, now with a 6-3 pro-life court, Roe v. Wade can be overturned, even though it is precedent. So precedent doesn't mean anything. Any Supreme Court can do whatever they want. And they did in 2013. Yeah. And I, I will say that Roberts and to some degree Gorsuch haven't always fallen on the on the That's they don't they don't fall in line with the Republican or the conservative agenda every time. There have been in the Title Seven case, uh, I believe last summer, Gorsuch came over and wrote the assent. Um, so there are uh, examples, particularly as it pertains to to so, some civil rights where uh, civil rights cases that have, you know, meandered their way up to the Supreme Court were that, that haven't adhered to this 6-3 division. But clearly Roberts is already on the record here um, and, and does not seem to support the core provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And I think that that's very dangerous because even if somehow H.R. 1 and now S1 is passed, it will likely be challenged and end up in the Supreme Court. But before we even get there, let's just talk about the likelihood of it being passed and what are some of the barriers that may or, or may not stand in, in the way. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. This, you see, this is why I love politics. You know, some people, they like you know, you know, uh, to read uh, fiction or, or watch Netflix series, there is so much drama <laughs> of consequence like, that really is going to affect your life and your kids' lives and all of that, right? And this thing called the filibuster is this twist and turn conflict drama of of the ages, even right. though it sounds so wonky, as you said, right? I mean, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And it has just, uh, you know, and of course, these arcane provisions, you know, change in potency depending on the time that you're in. Because, of course, 
you know, when the filibuster came in to sort of, quote unquote, protect minority rights, and and by minority rights, in this case, I mean, the party that is in minority, um, it it was seldom ever invoked. It wasn't really used as this, um, uh, as a hostage. Um, And and so, but it was only really into in the last, I guess, since the seventies, more or less. Although I, I don't know the history as well as, as probably you do, um, that ha- it has become uh, more leveraged by the minority to hold up the legislative agenda of the majority. So, just what is it exactly? What what, what power does the the filibuster endow members of the Senate? Well, the, the funny thing is when the filibuster came up and it was used to protect the minority in the Senate so they didn't just get steamrolled, right. it was in fact to continue to enslave the actual minority in the country, right? right. And because yeah. most of the filibusters were done to prevent civil rights legislation that the South didn't want. Yeah, that's a yeah excellent point about the so, history of it. But here's, and, and people will know the name I'm going to mention in a minute. There has been one individual that has changed how the filibuster is implemented in the United States Senate and bastardized and completely destroyed the original intent of the filibuster. And that person is Mitch McConnell. Oh, yes, of course. Mitch McConnell has mm-hmm. destroyed the United States Senate. And he he's a Machiavellian genius. And he figured, hey, I'm just going to use every trick and old-fashioned rule and technique in the book. And even my friends in the Democratic side of the Senate, you know, they kind of bow down to his Machiavellian, you know, amoral brilliance. And so Virtually every single thing that that Joe Biden wants, let's make it concrete, every single thing that Joe Biden wants, you know, to get passed through Congress, it will pretty easily get passed in the House because we have a majority, Democrats have a majority with Nancy Pelosi, and we have a 50-50 Senate. We have 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats. So if they all vote, you know, their own separate way and it's 50-50, then Kamala Harris comes in from her vice president's office and she casts the deciding vote. So it's 51-50, which is why the Democrats have control of the Senate. Yeah, but as she order, did with the COVID bill. As she did with the COVID bill. And, and you know, it's fantastic that we have that. But the only reason she was able to vote for the COVID bill and break the tie was that that COVID bill fits into, we get a little wonky, but it's not that hard, fits into this thing, this exemption, this waiver that happens generally once per year called budget reconciliation. Because there was a determination that if things could be tied or they, they would, could be filibustered having to do with the budget, we would, we, we would strangle as a country. No bill, no, we couldn't buy anything. We'd go broke, you know, we'd be in a stalemate. So We'll have an exception, right? With just a simple majority once a year for a big budget bill. But you can put other things into that bill, which Democrats clearly did. So HR one and HR four, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, to undo the horrors of John Roberts and the Supreme Court, 
in Shelby versus Holder in 2013, they do not fit into the budget reconciliation exception to the filibuster rule, which means you have to get 60 people to end the filibuster, which is called cloture, right? In order to get to be able to even vote for that bill and pass it by 5150. Does that make sense? I know it's uh, math. No, it's absolutely. Simple. So just to be clear, if you are a member of the Senate and you are against a bill that is being proposed, that you can debate that bill in any way that you see fit to delay a vote on that. You could read the phone book. You could read the yellow pages. We're dating ourselves. There's no yellow pages anymore or white pages, but there was when I was growing up. And you could sit there on the floor of the Senate. Yellow yerba mate. Yeah, (laughs) I had some today. Um, And you could sit there on the floor of the Senate and essentially just delay indefinitely um, and a vote would die uh, because you would just filibuster it to death. And right. you know, Jimmy and, Smith, and Mr. Smith, I mean, Jimmy Stewart, and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. That's a right. great example. Exactly. And the only way to prohibit or to shut that down is to be able to invoke cloture, which takes 60 votes. And then if you are able to do that, then you can go back, call a vote on the bill and you only need 51 votes to pass it. But of course, if you can't get the 60 to invoke the cloture, you know, you right. can't get that done. And so here we are with a number of important bills that do not fall within that um, exception of budget reconciliation. And uh, and so what are we going to do? And of course, now, you know, this brings up this idea uh, that has been floated now for the last you know number of administrations or, or congressional sessions around the nuclear option of essentially just blowing up the filibuster in order to uh, in order to propagate the agenda and get some stuff done. Um, so where do you where do you fall on this? And you know if you could kind of presage an outcome. What's going on? Because there are obviously there are centrist members of the Democratic Party who are from states where they might be kind of vulnerable um, that seem to be against blowing up the filibuster, most notably Joe Manchin and and Cinema from Arizona. So give me your uh, diagnosis on this, Professor. Right. So real quick, a little little additional history. So in, I believe it was 2013, Mitch McConnell was filibustering every circuit court judge nomination, every district court nomination, and every cabinet appointment that Barack Obama wanted. McConnell was just saying, no, we're going to filibuster. You got to get 10, you got to get 60, right? And we didn't have 60 Democrats at that point. And so Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader, said, okay, we're eliminating the filibuster for presidential appointments of, of, of federal court judges and cabinet appointees, but we're, we're saving the Supreme Court. We still need the 60 for the Supreme Court. And then 2017 happened, and of course, we had this empty seat, and Trump appointed you know, 
uh, Neil Gorsuch, and he didn't have 60 votes. So Mitch McConnell said, ah, we're done with the filibuster for the Supreme Court. So now the only thing that remains is the filibuster for pieces of legislation. And um, you're absolutely right. There are two there. And, and the thing to know is that a majority can end the 60 vote filibuster requirement with 51 votes. Right. right. I mean, okay, sorry for all the numbers, but there yeah, this is, is it. So, this is we're, we're, we're doing it. We're unpacking but, but again, it. Democracy is a mathematical concept. It's all about numbers, right? But so here's how that works, right? So if Chuck Schumer says, okay, we're going to have a vote on whether we're going to get rid of the filibuster, right? He needs, so 50 Republicans are going to say no. And if he gets all of the 50 Democrats to say yes, Kamala Harris comes in and boom, it's now, it's now done. But there are two Democratic senators Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kirsten Cinema, who is a real surprise because she used to be quite a liberal and she's even bisexual and very socially liberal, but she wants to be like John McCain and be this independent maverick person. And she has said that she will not blow up the filibuster. And Manchin literally said when a reporter asked about a week ago, "Are you gonna? Are you open to doing you know, getting rid of the filibuster?" And he goes, "Jesus." Christ, what about the word no or never? What about the word never do you not understand? So if, in fact, we'll cut to the chase, if Manchin and Cinema stand in the way of getting rid of the filibuster and they're not willing to do any other, you know, creative reform of the filibuster, H.R. 1 will not pass. H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, will not pass. All of these horrible, repressive, you can't eat pizza in a in the voting line and you can't vote early and you can't register early and you can't send in your vote, your ballot. All those things designed to repress mainly young and African-American, Hispanic votes and others as well, but disproportionately that will go into effect. And what that likely will mean, according to virtually every expert that I've spoken to, is that the Democrats will lose the House in 2022, they will lose the Senate in 22, and they will lose the House, the Senate, and the White House in 2024, and for the rest of the decade. That's what I talked about at the beginning of, of the podcast. So it is of enormous consequence to Joe Biden and to Chuck Schumer and to Nancy Pelosi and to the majority of people who want Joe Biden's policies to be implemented. But there are some options. So let's go into some of those options, because I can only fast forward to a situation where Joe Manchin is forced to to make some kind of Faustian bargain or, you know, he's going to look at the uh, if he shares your diagnosis of the fate of the uh, of, of, of the Democrats electorally over the, the next decade, then. You know, he's also not stupid and he's going to be forced into a situation where it never might become, well, maybe if it's like this. Um, so what are some of those uh, compromises that might emerge that might bring um, him and, and potentially cinema 
over. Right. So let me cut to the chase. It will happen. And why will it happen? Because Joe Biden is going to call Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema into the White House and say, <clears throat> carrot or stick. Right. So the stick is I'm going to pull together Democratic donors who have busted their ass and spent hundreds of millions of dollars so that we could accomplish certain things in this country and in my presidency. And they're going to make sure that you never get reelected again. They're going to put hundreds of millions of dollars to defeat you in Arizona and in West Virginia. But more likely, since Joe Biden's a really nice guy, he'll start with the carrot. And he'll say, what, what do you need? I know you want to do good things for West Virginia. What do you need? I know you want to do really good things for Arizona. What do you need? And he will make sure they get it. And then what they're going to do is they're going to find a compromise. So one of the things that Joe Biden, that Joe Manchin talked about is we're going to go back to the old fashioned filibuster like for Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And we're going to make these filibusterers stand up all day and all night. Right. And by the way, they can then hand off to another Republican. Right. So it can go on for forever. Right. The bad news of that is they get it's like Fox News. Right. They, they would get to put out all this crap. So. That may not be the best solution. Another solution, which a friend of mine who's a really brilliant guy named Norm Ornstein, American Enterprise Institute, he's talking about is let's just flip it. Al Franken is also talking about this. Instead of having the majority have to find 60 people, we're going to make sure that the minority finds 41 people, right? So they're going to have to hang and stay in town. They're going to have to stay next to the Senate to make sure that they can get their 41, right? So it's kind of, that's kind of a silly war in my opinion. I think what's likely gonna happen is they're going to say, you know what? Yes, the budget is critical to the affairs of our country, just like a budget for a family is really important, right? You need, that's a, that's a fundamental part. But so is democracy for God's sake. So are voting rights for God's sake. So that it could be budget reconciliation idea, the exemption, the waiver can be expanded to include democracy issues and voting rights issues because they are foundational to our country. Something like that. I wrote a right. piece in Medium about, I said, keep the filibuster fine, but let's have waivers. So that will happen. I'm 99% certain something like that will happen. But you see, it's the twist and turn. It's this mystery novel because that's nowhere near the end of the story. Yeah, it sounds like what you're suggesting is almost akin to a get-out-of-jail-free card that can be um, uh, you know, cashed in once a year or twice a year um, right. when it centers around some particular issue like democracy or voting rights. And, right. you know, it seems, you know, by the description that you gave that the rights associated with the filibuster are slowly eroding. And McConnell has been a, a source uh, of, that, of that erosion um, as it pertains to, uh, you know, appointments, et cetera, as, as, you, as you pointed out, and that a, a very possible outcome over these next six months is that there is another exception that is effectuated for things like HR one or maybe the Dreamers Act, I'm not, I'm not really sure how you would delineate, you know, between what what would 
account in this kind of new category coupled with uh, budget reconciliation. But again, you know, this is this is uncharted territory. But of course, let's just say, <laughs> just to play this forward into one last chapter, uh, because this, you know, this is a uh, part of the intrigue, as you say, of 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 the political narrative. Uh, let's say that somehow, some way, HR one does get through the Senate, likely with some modifications. To be honest, and it'll go back to the House. And but let's say that bill actually gets out of Congress and and goes to Joe Biden's desk, and and he signs it. What happens then? Because clearly, as we've already discussed, the Roberts court is not particularly keen to um, to reinstantiate the, the broadest uh, interpretation of, of the 65 Voting Rights Act. Right. Um, that, that's absolutely true. And just so you know the constitutional issue, right? So the Republicans have a lot of support in the Constitution because the Constitution says that states are in charge of how they run their elections, right? So, for example, some states have mail-in ballots, some states have early voting, some states don't. And, and the states get to decide how they choose their electors who ultimately you know, will, will elect the president. But there is also some federal authority which says that Congress shall determine the, the time and place and manner of federal elections. So you got something that both sides can hang their hats on. And, the, and uh, Justice Alito, Justice Clarence Thomas, and clearly Justice, Chief Justice Roberts are leaning more towards the state's rights aspect of this. And therefore, they would say H.R. 1 is unconstitutional because it takes away the state's ability to criminalize pizza. If they want to criminalize pizza, they should be able to criminalize pizza, okay? And, I mean, I'm joking, but I'm not. And then you've got three, the three de um, Democrats, sadly without Ruth Bader Ginsburg now. Happy birthday, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, on the 15th of March. And she just got a statue in her hometown of Brooklyn, which is awesome. Love Ruth yeah. Bader Ginsburg. One of the greatest Americans, not just greatest American women, one of the greatest Americans of all time. Um, so you have three, you have Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, and they're going to go to support H.R. 1. So you got three, three, so that's six. And then it all is going to come down to two out of three of Donald Trump's three Supreme Court justices, you know, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. I predict that at least two of those three will vote to overturn and kill H.R. 1. Okay. After, after all of this, after all of this, if the Supreme Court says, boom, then we have to play a different game. Right. But just to be clear, it's not as if this bill gets passed and sent to Joe Biden's desk and he signs it and the next day the Supreme Court adjudicates it. This is a quite a process of of uh, uh, of a law or, or of a, a case 
that winds its way kind of up through um, courts? Yes and, and, yes and no. Yes okay. and no. Because what's going to happen is you already have 20 attorney generals, 20 out of the 50 attorney generals from yeah. 20 red states who have already declared that this is unconstitutional. Right. So as soon as H.R. 1, as soon as Joe Biden is the ink is dry on signing H.R. 1, I promise you they're going to run into district court in D.C. or some other place and try to get an injunction, a restraining order to stop the implementation of H.R. 1. And then that's going to be appealed the circuit court, and then it could go very quickly, at least on the injunction, right? So it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a tough, because the future, at least of Joe Biden's presidency and the next decade is going to depend on this. Hmm. But then, but the Democrats have some, they have some uh, aces up their sleeve too. You want to hear about those? Or We're we here. Come on. No, I think I think we should hear it because my sense is is that it will pertain to the makeup of said Supreme Court. So play that out. Here you go. See, what I love about civics, it, 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 it's exactly like rock, paper, scissors, right? So for every advantage you have with paper or rock or scissors, right, there's a disadvantage, right? So you can go scissors, oh, that scissors is great, but no, rock can beat it. And that's exactly what happens with the three branches of government, which is why I think it's so fun, right? It's such a game. You got the Supreme Court can overrule Congress. It could also overrule the president. The president can overrule Congress. It could also do things to overrule the, the courts, and, right? And this is exactly what's going to happen. So what's going to happen is Joe Biden's going to go, oh, Supreme Court. Or you don't like my HR one. Huh. You know what I've been thinking about doing? Even though Fox News doesn't like this idea, I've been thinking about expanding the Supreme Court. And you like those apples, you know? You know what do you think of that, you know? So then what Joe Biden could do, and the Supreme Court can't do anything about it, is sit down with Chuck Schumer and get rid of the filibuster in order to pass a bill that would expand the number of Supreme Court justices by two or four, right? And then, and then immediately have them all ready to go. Here are my four justices. Let's get them confirmed in a couple of weeks. They now are on the Supreme Court. And we now have, instead of nine, we have 13 justices with a significant majority that is going to uphold H.R. 1. Yes. I love this shit. <laughs> of course, this is the slippery slope of politics and you know and who kind of holds the the chalice at one particular time because clearly, you know, this is just a uh, you know, once you and the filibuster or stack the court, really what you're just doing is opening up the possibility for the next administration, if they do have the Congress, to do the same thing. Right. So, first of all, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans have broken the rules of getting along and playing fair. They have. 
Have the Democrats had some role in it? A little bit, but it's been overwhelmingly McConnell and the Republicans. Why? Because they do not have the support for their policies from the majority of the American people. So they have to exercise some fancy footwork in order to stay in power, which they have done, right? But here's something that'll make you feel better. So let's say we increase the Supreme Court to 11 or to 13, and they go, oh gosh, when the, Demo- when the Republicans come into power, they're going to reduce the number, or they're going to have term limits, or they're going to expand it to 25, and they're going to, right? But in order for that to happen, the Republicans have to win a majority in the House, a majority in the Senate, and the White House. That trifecta mm-hmm. is very hard to do, which is why the Democrats are working so hard to get stuff done now, because even in 2022, that may no longer be the case. So I'm not concerned yeah. about it. Plus, we're talking about climate change and we're talking about you know, taking care of people who are really suffering. Let's, let's focus right now on the short term. Let's, let's fix these things. Let's heal the environment. Let's heal our social injustices. And then we'll worry about you know, what might come in the future in the future. But coming back to my original point, if yogis and meditators and environmentalists and animal lovers and whatever who are listening to a podcast like this, understood that politics is not this dirty, low-frequency thing, and it can actually be a positive thing, and they got involved, and they voted based on, you know, yogic values and consciousness values, um, we could, we will probably never lose, at least not for a really long time. Yeah, well, I I so appreciate this conversation for the very reason that you just articulated, which is that it is very, very easy for us to uh, to distrust our institutions, particularly government. And it has been undermined uh, for, in many cases, for completely legitimate reasons. But government also can really, really function and work and serve people. And as part of this, we just saw it as part of this last COVID bill. I mean, what is being promised for children the $300 a month allocated a for is it a week i think no no you're right month. it's a month that's a month a week is unemployment will cut child poverty in half in this country i also saw i've been reading now about the 4 billion or 5 billion dollars allocated to black farmers for example there are a lot of components to this bill that cut right to the core of taking care of people. And this is what it always comes back. Once you get through kind of all of this wonkiness, the the reason why we're interested in this at the end of of the day is highly ethical and moral because what a society should be doing is maximizing the amount of thriving and minimizing the amount of suffering. That's really at its core purpose from a moral and ethical perspective is what it should be doing. And I always go back to the Gandhi quote that a true, the true measure of society is how it treats its most vulnerable citizens, period. And I think what we're seeing now is deliberate action to focus on how do we take care of our most vulnerable citizens, particularly in this time where COVID really what it's just done is it has shown a light on inequities and disparities that exist within our society 
uh, on health disparities, obviously in financial disparities, and it has exacerbated and hyperbolized them. And now it's time to, you know, in my mind, really through an ethical and moral lens, attack some of these issues that can move us farther down the arc of the, of the moral universe. So, you know, I, I think that the, the more educated we can be on these topics, the better. I, I don't even really see, although we, we did obviously touch on some issues within this discussion that are partisan and, and we have particular penchants and proclivities around, uh, around you know, the party that we align with. But this is not necessarily learning about how the government functions and becoming civically engaged it is not a partisan, innately a partisan activity. Well, to this point, and, and maybe, you know, this kind of sums it up. Um, about six years ago, I had an epiphany. I said, you know what, this is, we're beating each other up. This is silly, right? It's like people hate politicians or they hate a particular political party and they hate politics, you know, as a whole, as a process, as usual. And I said, and I got had this epiphany that, since politics, since government, since democracy is a mathematical concept, there was actually a magic number in order to get whatever you want. Whatever you want, you can get if you hit the magic number of America. And so the magic number of America, I'll tell you in a second, but here's why it's important. So one of, so I, I'm an animal rights activist. It's a very important issue for me. And I think if I had a magic wand, the one thing I would do is go, boom, factory farms are done, right? They are illegal tomorrow. Now, how about tonight, right? Because it's just, it's just horrific what is done in terms of suffering, right, to these billions of animals every single year. Um, and there is a bill. There is a bill that was sponsored by Cory Booker, a vegan, and also Elizabeth Warren. And it has a number of co-sponsors in the House and the Senate. And what this bill will do, if it simply reaches the magic number of people, and I'll tell you what that is in a second, and it passes, is it will end factory farms by 2040. I'd like to see them end sooner, but this, there would be a period of time for these farms to transition to less cruel and horrific ways of making money and, and producing food. Um, so all we need to do to get that passed, see, this is the eternal optimism of politics and the, inter the eternal possibility and potential of politics to do good things, right? We do the same for the Climate Action Now Act, the Equal Pay for Women Act, on and on. But let's just take this one fantasy bill of ending factory farms by 2040, all you need is 218 members of the House of Representatives, which is a simple majority at a 435, to say, yeah, we're, uh, Senator Brooker, we're going to vote for your bill. And it passes the House, 218. And then it goes to the Senate. And depending on whether the filibuster is in place or not, let's say it is, you would need 60. So 218 plus 60 means 278 people saying, yes, let's end factory farming. Then it goes to one more person, right? And that is the president to sign it. So 218 plus 60 plus one is 279. So the, currently the magic number 
to get whatever you want done is 279. And I have a, a website that I established years ago called 279forchange.us.unitedstates. And now if we eliminate the filibuster, it would be 218 plus, yeah, 50, 51, 50, 51 plus one. Plus one. So we would yeah. reduce it by nine. So instead of 279 for change, it would only be 270 for change, right? So what I want to share is that this is not written in stone, right? We can make anything we want happen if people get out and vote and you want to vote for Democrats or Republicans, it's fine. It doesn't matter. You go out and you say, you know, the number one issue to my heart that is so deeply emotional for me that I care about is getting is ending factory farms. And I don't think there's anyone in your audience that is like, yeah, we need factory farms. Let's torture those cows and pigs and chickens, right? So I, I brought a, an issue that I think has a lot of currency here. But you say, okay, I don't care about anything else. I hate political parties. I hate politicians. I'm going to just hire proxies to represent me. And I'm going to find out, I'm going to say congressman or congressional candidate, will you vote? Will you commit in writing to vote for the Farm Reform Act, which will get rid of factory farms by 2040. And if they say yes, then you say, okay, well, I'll consider voting for you. And you do that to the senator and you do that for the president. And if we got just all of the people who love animals to actually engage, to register to vote and to focus on the one issue that is most deeply meaningful in their hearts, we could do anything. And that's what's exciting. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Richard Green. Follow him on Twitter at The Civics Dean or on Facebook at Richard Green, The Civics Dean. And you can follow me too on Instagram at Jeff Krasno or shoot me an email at jeffk at onecommune.com. And while you're at it, make my mom smile with a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all from The Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno and I am here for you.